Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Triple R Radiotherapy time. We go from all things wet and salty and the fine crew over at Radio Marinara to this fine crew of all things health, well-being and medicine. It's Panel Beater in the studio with Neo Natal, uh, Dr Sharma and... Um... <laughs> wow. Undercaffeinated, I'm sensing. Yeah. Panel Beater today. It's a dilemma here. A dilemma, Dr Dilemma. <laughs> I just had, a, I just had a, a total dilemma there. Right? She's and away one week and then she's forgotten about yeah, it. That's right. <laughs> You know you have those uh, brain fades in real time? Like, I, I, I could feel it coming on. I feel like I'm going to trip up here. I'm going to trip up here. It's been two years. It's all right. It's all right. You're forgiven. <laughs> this one time. If that's as sinful as I get, then that forgiveness is fine. Welcome. Happy Sunday. Mm, rainy Sunday. Rainy Sunday in November. And auspicious in one sense. It's our, for this particular formulation of radiotherapy, the last of 2023 in November. It feels odd a bit. I can hear the che- the cheers around Melbourne. <laughs> Thank right. God. Thank God, the last of that mob. Yeah. Um, yeah, it is. Uh, don't uh, panic. There will be uh, two more uh, radiotherapies for the year um, still to come as the uh, regular programming starts to uh, stagger its way to a close for the year before summer programming gets in. Keep an eye out some of the fantastic summer fills, no doubt. What a show. Uh, what a week it's been. What a show we've got coming up. We uh, traditionally do an awards show at the end of our tenure of the year. We've got a truncated version of that uh, this year. I don't even know which awards we're going to do. We haven't had that discussion yet, so we're going to do that in real time on here um, somehow. Um, but I swear we're usually prepared. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we've got some awards. We'll we'll be doing all, well. I don't know what they are, so I can't forecast them right now. But looking forward to doing those um, with you. There's no, nothing to worry about here because we are spoiled for choice. Okay, spoiled the, for choice. The, the, the There's reason the glass we haven't finalised the, the awards for. is you know the the WhatsApp group was just packed full of winners and losers, really, which is what the awards for me is really about. So I, I can't wait to. Hash it all out with the team here. It'll be good. It'll be good. Um, no doubt, indeed. And they are, of course, are very much um, uh, uh, tongue in cheek, ladies and gentlemen. Um, so we won't get our knickers in a knot. We will be inviting you to join us uh, in those awards once we know what they are. Um, <laughs> but keep the uh, text line handy on zero four double six. Nine eight one zero two seven. We'll be loving here. You can even create your own award if you've got something that's caught your eye in health, well-being, and medicine during the year, and you want to generate your own award. We'll keep an eye out for that. We're taking votes for favorite radiotherapy presenter of the year, uh, <laughs> People's Choice Award. I was not notified about this. I would have started my campaign much earlier. Right. But I do want to give people a bit of a flavour of the kind of things that we're uh, creating awards for. Dr. So if Sharma. you've got your own, then do that. But you know, we've got the health personality of the year. Yeah, which is uh, not so much a, a, an award you win, but when you lose. Um, innovation of the year, we've got a few nominees. 
uh, the Medical Health Trend of the Year, Medical Science Shoots Itself in the Foot Award. So there's a few of these awards that will be coming up. We've all got our own favourite nominees, but we will make decisions. There will be a hard line cast who wins <laughs> tries, who today. Yes. And prizes will be, of course, in the mail. <laughs> um, again, that number, if you want to join in the fun, 0466981027 with any of the awards that we've got going on or th- stuff that you'd like to make up for yourself. One of the reasons we're truncated um, for the awards this year is because we have a special guest Dr. Dilemma. Mm, we are very, very lucky this morning, and we're joined in the studio by Dr. Paul Lichnitsky, who will be speaking to us about um, earlier this year. We, I think we touched briefly on it on one of our shows on radiotherapy. We spoke about the TGA decision yeah, to yeah. Um, approve the use of some psychedelic agents uh, for clinical use in uh, mental health conditions. So we're very lucky that we'll be joined by. Um, the head of the clinical psychedelic lab at Monash University to help us understand, unpack uh, this decision in a bit more detail. It'd be great. Fantastic. And that'll be coming up very, very shortly. Did I just see a finger go up there? Dr. Sharma, were you about to say something? No. no oh, that, no, was, no. that was other body language. Yeah, just, just <laughs> taking yeah. the temperature in the room. Really. <laughs> okay, right. <laughs> Place the wind blowing. Hot, hot, hot. Yeah, that's yeah. what influences my commentary. Yeah. Okay. So with that uh, full show coming up, uh, let's um, get ourselves off to a, a quick break and come back to that first special guest. You're on Radiotherapy. It's myself, panel beater, Dr. Dilemma, Dr. <laughs> Neo and Dr. Sharma. We'll be back very shortly after these sponsor announcements. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. We're back on Radiotherapy on Triple R. This morning we're joined in the studio by Dr Paul Lichnitsky, who's the head of the Clinical Psychedelic Lab at Monash University and the Chief Principal Investigator on a program of psychedelic trials. He's a senior, senior research fellow within the Department of Psychiatry at Monash University, has an honours degree in neuroscience and a PhD in psychology from the University of Melbourne. Dr Lich- Lichnitsky is an investigator on many of Australia's initial psychedelic trials across many institutions and he's coordinated several psychedelic therapist training and supervision programs and he leads the first clinical psychedelic lab. Paul, welcome to Radiotherapy. Thanks for coming in this morning. Thanks for having me. What a very interesting field of work and field of research. Um, I like to ask our guests how they came to be where they're working today. What got you into this area, and particularly into this um, this niche area within um, psychology? Mm. Yeah, I, I feel grateful every day for the role I have. Um, it's pretty fantastic work. Very challenging, but uh, fascinating all the time. Um, I had an interest in psychedelic uh, therapies for mental illness for about 15 years prior to uh, setting up the country's first psychedelic lab. Um, You know, whenever things work uh, in the face of uh, difficult odds, there's always, you know, a good degree of effort and a good degree of luck. And I think uh, history just rolled up beside me. Uh, If I had attempted to set up a lab in this country 20 years ago, I don't think it would have worked. But we've seen generational changes in in perspectives on drug use. We've seen... uh, mounting evidence from overseas trials and um you know really uh, this is this has been a very dynamic uh, period of time in in psychedelic history and in fact over the last just few years australia has represented uh, arguably the most rapid changes in uh, in the psychedelic field globally 
Paul, it's interesting to hear you describe the landscape like that. From my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, many decades ago, there was some research into the therapeutic uh, um, potential for, for psychedelics. It seems like things went through a hiatus and now there's an explosion. What explains this, mm. this kind of undulation in, in public interest yeah, or institutional interest? It's a complex story. Uh, you know, really, psychedelics entered into Western psychiatry in the 40s and, and uh, picked up some uh, speed in the 50s, 60s, and then mid-70s, there, there was a very productive period of time there, uh, and psychedelics were considered the next big thing in psychiatry. Um, through a number of uh, factors, largely political, um, the war on drugs was introduced uh, via a psychotropic act uh, that made these drugs illegal and prohibited them uh, it, to the same degree that uh, heroin and crack cocaine are prohibited. They were considered uh, you know, without medical value and uh, very high abuse potential, um, and at the time that that decision was made, 1971, that was clearly a lie because there was already nearly two decades of reasonable research prior to that indicating that uh, the abuse potential of drugs like uh, LSD, which was the mm-hmm. flagship psychedelic at the time, uh, was very low um, among the you know the, the lowest of, of the psycho- psychotropic uh, agents uh, that we use, and. Um, and the medical value was definitely uh, there. It was really it was promising. So uh, it, it's been a very complicated uh, story that has had multiple factors at play. Uh, we saw the very beginnings again. Some small islands of research in uh, the late 1990s that have picked up slowly, and then in the last five years or so, the field has uh, really gone crazy. Um, and it's the next big thing in psychiatry once again. Albeit, uh, you know, there is good reason for. Uh, some caution and scepticism and concern. Uh, there's a lot of promising signals and signs, but uh, what we've learned on the ground over the last couple of years and what our colleagues over the, overseas have learned uh, over the last couple of decades is that getting these drugs into somebody's body is um, the trivial part of, of uh, the, the situation. You really have a whole set of extra pharmacological factors that you need to get right, and they're non-trivial in order to ensure safety and longer-term uh, efficacy. Before we get into the fascinating research that's that's taking place, would you mind just painting a bit of a picture of what a psychedelic lab actually looks like? I imagine that it's um, not just a, a nice low security walk-in, drugs on the counter, and um, and I imagine it's quite a, a process to set one it's up. It's very colourful and the Grateful Dead are playing in the background, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, um, no, it's exactly. actually quite plain. It just looks that way. <laughs> yeah, if you're yeah, yeah. one of the test subjects, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, yeah, so a huge amount of work goes into you know setting up a fit for purpose facility and getting all the approvals. There's you know there's, there's a lot behind it all. Um, although you know if you were to walk into our clinic, and we've actually just moved into a new research clinic that we set up at Monash, so it's a, it's a much bigger expanded facility that's really great. Um, but you'd be very surprised where it is. It sits in a rather nondescript business park, and when you walk in, it just looks like offices. But once you get into the doors, then things start to look more beautiful and more comfortable. But it's not, um, you know, it's, we deliberately make it uh, a very comfortable, uh, relaxing environment. Not a, not a, it doesn't appear to be a very medical environment. Uh, although, you know, you walk into our drug-safe room and there's all kinds of, you know, equipment there and, and, and various things in place. But... Um, yeah, it, it, it looks like a set of uh, psychotherapy um, offices, or maybe lounge rooms. Um, and what we're trying to do in that context is create um, a, a, a kind of sanctuary 
even though we can't do it in the forest just yet, we're doing it in the city, but we're creating a, a sanctuary of sorts where people can uh, relax and, and go into um, these psychedelic experiences, which are, by most people's accounts, among the most personally profound and often challenging experiences of their lives. So, Paul, in this laboratory, this sanctuary, what are some of the questions that your research is looking at? And I guess I'm, I'm keen to know, in distinction to some of the other, you know, lots of research that's being done around the world, what are specifically the points of difference in what you're trying to address here? Yeah, so we have a number of clinical trials that are underway and a couple that are complete now. We've got a few focuses, and, and some of them are world-first studies. One of the studies that uh, we've now completed was a world-first opportunity to give high-dose psilocybin to our therapists as part of their training, and we assessed whether that was a useful training tool. So that's psychedelic-assisted training, not therapy. Um, and we'll be publishing on that early next year. We've been presenting on that um, at various conferences, but um, it was an incredibly useful uh, training experience for those therapists that underwent it. So this is fascinating, and, bec- and I will ask you what the results we're seeing. You have been talking about it in, um, at conferences because the way we obviously think about it is that a therapeutic agent is going to help with someone who has the pathology. Mm. We're talking about the person giving the therapy. What's going on? What did you find and why do you think uh, that occurred? Mm. Yes, so psychedelic-assisted therapy is very different than other psychiatric uh, medications in in a number of regards. A lot of people will say something like, well, I don't need to take an antidepressant to prescribe it. Why do I need to take, you know, psilocybin to prescribe it? Well, this is, you know, one of the ways to think about it is it's it's an experiential medicine. You need a set of ingredients. You need a serotonergic agent. uh, You need uh, a therapeutic container. You need conducive set and setting and so on. Uh, and then you have a high chance of achieving the kinds of experiences that seem to have therapeutic utility. And it does seem to be that certain kinds of acute experiences predict therapeutic benefit better than anything else. Uh, so we're delivering a kind of experience and then we're assisting people in, in kind of processing and, and instantiating uh, the lessons from that experience into their lives. For you to be a therapist and sit along somebody who's going to uh, potentially have one of the most profound, challenging, impossible to describe, you know, a non-ordinary kind of experience and for them to feel trust that uh, that you know you've got their back and that you're aligned and for all of the support to occur principally non-verbally mm. in that dosing session uh, there's potentially a lot of value in having had that experience before I mean, we usually go to analogy or, or metaphor like if you were uh, to be you know um assisted on some foreign planet in navigating, you know, a new world and trying to find treasures and, and uh, you know, bypass the monsters. It'd be nice if your guide had been there before. Mm. Mm, absolutely. That is so fascinating, isn't it? Um, I'm wondering what do we understand so far of the actual mechanism of action of these agents? How do we understand the biomedical how they work to, mm. to achieve or unlock these potential experiences to have such benefits? Yeah, you, you can always come at these questions from very different uh, angles. And, uh, you know, there, there has been some very interesting neuroimaging and even molecular work done to kind of untangle how psychedelics work. We know quite a lot about how they work at a molecular level in the brain. So, you know, psilocybin and LSD and these classic psychedelics uh, are, are drugs that work like a key in one particular lock in your brain. The lock is called the serotonin 5-2A receptor. Um, and a whole set of uh, downstream effects occur in, in the brain thereafter. One, there are a number of patterns. One of, them, one of the key patterns that occurs is that parts of your brain that typically do not quote-unquote, talk to one another, start talking, particularly uh, parts of your brain that are normally in competition with each other now are uh, co-activated. But 
I would argue, you know, we could talk about that for, for some time, but I'd argue that the neural correlates of what mm. matters under psychedelics are very uh, difficult to pin down. I would say we're hundreds of years from, from the neural correlates of, of what matters under psychedelics. A much more powerful way to understand uh, psychedelic action is to ask people what they're experiencing. Mm. And in that regard, we, we are seeing uh, people reporting uh, very profound lessons um, that that are not just cognitive, they're not just in their heads. They're lessons that they feel in a very embodied and emotional way. And people feel this kind of, uh, so it's a new perspective on old problems, if you like, and an alignment to your priorities and a motivation to behave in alignment with your priorities. And yeah, it's a big story, but that's the basic. So medications such as, I mean, like the SSRIs and the SNRIs and the classic antidepressants that we use come with, relatively significant side effects uh, that we have to counsel patients about and make sure that they are aware that there's a cost-benefit uh, in taking these medications. Have you seen any kind of adverse effects with the medications that you've been prescribing, um, particularly if they're serotonin agonists and in high doses, they, I'd expect them to be have uh, not free of adverse events? Yeah. So, you know, we've only seen highly controlled clinical trials to date over the last 20 years, um, and the safety profile has been excellent. Um, interestingly, although there are serotonergic agonists for the classic psychedelics, again, like LSD, psilocybin, DMT, um, the physiological risk profile is, is very good. Uh, they're anomalous <laughs> uh, in that, like, you know, for you to take a dose of um, uh, a psilocybin, for example, that has a chance of killing you, it needs to be over a thousand times the high dose that we use therapeutically. Um, so uh, really, the, the risks are mostly psychological. They're to do with fear and paranoia and the potential for re-traumatization. And therefore, the risk mitigation is primarily uh, in the container that surrounds that drug experience, that is mostly your therapeutic relationship and what you've, the skills you've learned through your therapist in preparing you to navigate these psychedelic experiences. And do these risks uh, persist, or these, these side effects persist post uh, the acute phase? Yeah, so the, it looks like there, is, there are a small number of people, very small number of people that can have uh, persisting aberrant perceptual effects um, that can last in some cases. Uh, typically, they might last a day or two, but there have been some reports from people uh, using psychedelics in the wild of mm. longer-term effects. Now, it's always complicated to try and uh, draw inference from use in the wild to use in a clinic because we don't know about co-ingestants and all kinds of other contextual factors. Uh, but these, you know, one of the things that I'm interested in in the lab and one of the kind of points of difference that uh, you were asking about before is that we're interested in uh, underexplored risks associated with psychedelics. So we're going into a whole set of factors to do with uh, psychological, potential psychological mm -hmm. risks like, uh, you know, one of many, maybe something like conspiracy theory proneness. Mm. Right. Yeah. Paul, you're describing what the ways that this might work, not just on a neurological level or a biochemical level but at a psychological cognitive even kind of full body level as you were describing it's interesting to hear you talk about the things it's helping with things like you know motivations and i'm sure you can kind of flesh that out a bit i'm so interested to hear though clearly those things would have utility in the context of specific psychiatric conditions mm. how about how that could help a human when we are not pathologizing these things, when mm. there's an absence of a diagnosable psychiatric disorder as per a DSM. Mm. Um, 
is there much research happening into the, I don't even know, therapeutic is the right word, therapeutic mm. effect it can happen on someone who does not have a quote-unquote uh, disorder? Yeah, great question. So, you know, th- this is often referred to in the field as the betterment of well people. Mm. Um, and... Yes, the vast majority of people that use psychedelics in the wild are not uh, diagnosed with a psychiatric condition and they're reporting benefit uh, in various ways. Um, There have been a number of healthy uh, person studies uh, around the world um, and there is definitely some signal there that there is potential for improvements in well-being and motivation and alignment with your priorities and so on, similar things. I mean, clearly we we understand in the mental health world that... um, that the vast majority of conditions we're interested in are on a spectrum and uh, everybody's on the spectrums, whatever they may be. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think there is a, a potential in moving out in that direction for sure. One, one of the trials that I'm most keen to progress now, I've got uh, you know, most of the, um, the pieces in place, um, just waiting on the final uh, bit of funding for it to, to, to start, is uh, an MDMA-assisted couples therapy study now this is a kind of study that re- relies on philanthropic support because uh, a relationship is not a s- psychiatric dise- disease mm-hmm. and yet it is a massive issue hidden in plain sight in our community where uh, we see huge uh, uh, amounts of uh, mental health and, and physical health and behavioral problems in the family unit associated with high levels of conflict in parents and, uh, and with uh, separation in parents. And so we're wanting to recruit parents with high levels of conflict and, and uh, deliver MDMA-assisted therapy, which is actually the original medical use case of MDMA. Right. Yeah. Mm. Fascinating. Well, you, I was going to ask a question, but you somewhat touched on it, just um, speaking about the use of MDMA in, in couples therapy. So I understand the TGA has approved the use of psychedelics, just two psychedelics for two kind of specific uh, condition. So psilocybin for use in treatment-resistant depression and MDMA for use in post-traumatic stress disorder. Do you anticipate seeing a broader range of psychedelics being, being used? Why are these two agents for these two mm. specific diagnosable yeah. DSM conditions? Yeah, so our regulator, the uh, TGA, made an announcement on 3rd of February and instantiated the policy change on 1st July this year, which was... Uh, what's called a bifurcated downscheduling. That is, these drugs get to wear two hats depending on how they're used. They are considered Schedule 9 drugs, the most prohibited drugs alongside heroin and the like, uh, if we're using them in any other way and they have to only be used in clinical trials. Uh, Or if a certain kind of psychiatrist who's got a certain kind of approval that takes quite a lot to get... Uh, delivers psilocybin for treatment-resistant depression or MDMA for uh, for PTSD, then these are considered Schedule 8. These are controlled medicines, and they can be prescribed under a lot of constraint. Um, the reason for those two indications with those two drugs was that the evidence is emerging, uh, and while we have seen near on 20 psilocybin clinical trials in, in the last 20 years and near on 20 MDMA trials in the last uh, 20 years, um, the, the strongest evidence we have so far is, is MDMA for PTSD and psilocybin for TRD. Not necessarily strongest in terms of the best effects, but just those studies are further along. I see. Yeah. You're on Triple R Radiotherapy, and we're talking with uh, Dr. Paul Ignitsky about all things um, psychedelic medicine. Paul, I'm wondering if you could join the dots for us on community perceptions of what we're talking about and the and the clinical practice of it. And particularly, I think the three things that stand out for me where there might be a disconnect in perception is the setting in which these drugs and medicines are taken, um, the um, the dosage and the regimen. 
um, of taking them and uh, and the production of them. Mm. Yes, yeah, so so the setting in which uh, these treatments are delivered in our research trials is, uh, like I mentioned before, looks like a psychotherapeutic setting, and there's a lot of support. You you meet uh, after you screen through, which is quite a lengthy uh, process. Uh, then you meet two therapists, and they accompany you for the entire journey. That journey is typically depends on the trial and, and the treatment program, but it could be two or three months, and you may have two or three dosing sessions alongside substantially more psychotherapy. You're generally coming in every week. So it's not a take-home drug? Not at all, yep. not at all. No, and and it, it's unlikely to be in the future. So it's mm. it's alongside uh, substantial support and it's, it's it's alongside controlled conditions. So in our lab, although it looks like you know a lounge room and everything is really laid back, of course we have the capacity there to... Um, to jump in if any kind of medical situation occurs. Mm. Um, so, and, and, and we don't suspect that. I mean, we've got all kinds of contingencies in place, but we, we don't predict that uh, we're ever uh, likely to use any of them. Um, the key, the key uh, risk mitigation that we have in place is great therapy and great therapeutic relationships uh, and good screening. Um, in terms of the doses we use, we're using high doses. A lot of people get confused uh, when I'm speaking about psychedelics, thinking that I'm talking about microdosing, which is possibly more well-known and more widespread in the community. That is the use of very low doses of psychedelics that maybe cause some slight uh, you know, noticeable change in your awareness, but generally you have no functional impairment. You can, you know, you can drive and play with your kids and go to work. Um, I think it may have even been nominated as a trend in our award show yeah. a couple of years ago. Yeah, right. Indeed. Yeah, yeah, they say about a quarter of Silicon Valley's microdosing. Who knows? Yeah. But, um, <laughs> and, and the research behind uh, the utility of microdosing for mental illness or for you know, performance optimization or creativity, that research is actually um, very new and emerging, far less robust than the, than the research we have for high-dose psychedelics, which is what I do. So uh, in our lab, we use high doses. These are doses that are known to be safe uh, and are known to be um, uh, well-supported under therapeutic conditions, but typically occasion among the most profound uh, strange, challenging experiences uh, a person might undertake. So it's it's a it's a phenomenal place to work. You know, for us it's just another Tuesday, and for somebody else this may be the pivotal day of their lives. And production? Uh, the productions are so far offshore. We bring it in from overseas. There, uh, there are only a couple, only a small handful, maybe five different uh, suppliers of of these drugs. Um, and we bring it in through quite an arduous importation process. But there are a few people that are moving to set up onshore uh, production, uh, particularly in the context of the new authorised prescriber uh, situation where we're, we're going to see new uh, psychedelic clinics uh, popping up. Uh, they, they've, they'll probably start emerging this year and, and all through next year. Paul, right at the top of the chat, you mentioned that word scepticism. Now, there's a flurry of research, a lot of it very encouraging, However, something we often find with new therapies being explored is the hype will often exceed what academics ever promised or even pointed towards. Give us a realistic picture of what people should and should not expect from the judging by just kind of the the, the kind of central gravity of the, of the research at the moment. Um, there's clearly going to be some research saying this is you know, absolutely amazing. Then there's going to be negative trials. You've got a good gauge of where the truth probably sits in a kind of rough bracket. How do you see that aligning with what people's expectations are about the utility of these drugs, how they're being talked about in the media? Mm. Yeah, I have a lot of concern about the hype uh, and I'm very wary of hype, um, in large part because that leads to an 
uh, an underappreciation of what it takes to do a good job in the space or what it takes to kind of uh, improve in your mental health. Um, the I think the key misunderstanding at the center of the hype is the is the misunderstanding that this is primarily a drug treatment, mm-hmm. and that if you put that drug into somebody's body, they're very likely to to be a lot better down the track. Uh, when in actual fact, it is a form of augmented psychotherapy if you do it well. Uh, you know, these psychedelic experiences can give people unprecedented opportunity to access you know the sources of their distress or things that they've been avoiding their whole lives. That can often uh, destabilize people. Mm. Um, a good analogy is to surgery. You know, you you you, you can go into a surgery. Uh, you know, f- uh, walking in into the, into the service, and you can come out on a wheelchair, and that might be expected. Uh, and and you have post-operative pain, and then you work on, on on a rehabilitation program. And that can be the case with psychedelics too. We're kind of really opening things up and uh, and attempting to kind of uh, you know really really. Um, set people up for for a better well-being through the longer term but you need to then also recognize as a as a as a help seeker that it's an ongoing process that in, it entails your own um effort and and work you're not it's for most people it's not a one and done you don't just walk in and come out great and that's it for the rest of your life generally it sets you up on a virtuous cycle of learning and you need to kind of continue with that and for the the professional community i think uh that that hype and that misunderstanding that this is primarily a drug treatment, uh, you know, can can lead th- those folk to to provide less support than they might need to, or be less well trained than they might need to. Um, my sense is this: I mean, it's, it's it's emerging the story, but my sense is that the research trials to date ha- don't represent best practice hmm. uh, in, in best clinical practice because research trials are constrained by budgets and one size fits all uh, approach and, and needing a short intervention because you need to do a pre and post assessment and so on um, I think these clinics that are uh, likely to roll up in Australia over the coming year actually present the best opportunity we have to deliver a far more patient centric and hopefully more effective treatment than has ever been delivered in a clinical trial um, because my sense is that when you're when you're uncovering, when you're kind of going in and mining up, uh, you know, the, the difficult material, the sources of your distress, uh, you're likely to need an extended period of care, and you're likely to need a tailored form of care that can adapt to your needs. Uh, and I think in a, in a in a clinical context, we have the opportunity to do that. So, uh, you know, to, to circle back to to the the nub of your question, I think uh, I think there is enormous potential in psychedelics if we do a good job of it i think we can reliably do an excellent job of safety Hmm. if you know what you're doing i think the question of whether you can reliably do a good job of long-term improvements in mental health that's still a question Um, we can certainly uh, reliably you know uh, occasion transformative states and some months of change in people's lives but but going from Going from altered states to altered traits is non-trivial, and um, and so I think while there is enormous potential, still there are some big question marks about long-term efficacy, and because it's an expensive treatment approach, because there's a lot of person hours, mm. it's not. It's a little bit like to that surgery analogy again. You wouldn't really think that going into you know a big surgical procedure that maybe costs thirty thousand dollars. Doing that like every couple of months is a good idea for the rest mm. of your life. It, it only makes sense if, if you know, you're going to go in once or twice or three times and then you're set up for, for a better life in the longer term. And so that is still a question. Paul, we're, we're quickly running out of time. Um, and I mean, we could talk about this for, for hours. I guess 
I just wanted to quickly touch on the fact that it's a highly specialized, highly tailored, personal, uh, intensive therapy. It doesn't sound cheap to me. Uh, what do you think the expected cost to the patient would be um, for a kind of a session of this this treatment? Yeah. Um, so it's important to say that when you're talking about the cost, you need to talk about what you're paying for. Because um, if we don't, if we talk only about psychedelic assisted therapy as though it's a, you know it's a single thing, it's a it's a set thing. Uh, then it sets up a race to the bottom with mm. cheaper prices, uh, you know, being uh, more um, acceptable. Whereas there's a very big difference between, you know, one dosing session and two therapy sessions versus nine months of therapy and multiple dosing sessions. Yeah. So, um, so it really does depend on the model of care. I think a best model of care that is very extended and perhaps lasts, you know, half a year to a year is likely to cost, you know, twenty to $30,000. Although that, the pricing cannot be determined or fixed until... Uh, any clinic has approval to do what they're going mm. to do to, until their protocol is approved. Um, the, the critical thing is this, uh, you know, we do have to take care of uh, reimbursement in the short term in some way. We want to increase access and affordability as much as we can. It's not a good situation if this is just one for, you know, people with lots of money. Um, but I think there are two things to think about. One is that safety should always be first. Effectiveness should always be second. If you don't, mm. if you don't deliver a safe and effective intervention, then then everything else doesn't matter. Mm. Um, and then the third thing is cost effectiveness, and that means that there's you know if you have a cost effective intervention, it could still be a very expensive intervention. Governments are paying for them all the time. It's just that in the long term, it's good bang for buck. Mm. And so we need to gather the data on cost effectiveness over the longer term to see if the promise of psychedelics can be fulfilled in getting high rates of remission in the long term. So, you know, we'll see how that pans up. But in the, in the short term, uh, these clinics need to work with other kinds of reimbursers to get, uh, you know, reimbursement in whatever way they can through insurance or membership organisations. Mm. Mm, very much a watch this space. Uh, unfortunately, we're running very short of time Just this morning. Just before we do completely yes. wrap, uh, Dr. Delemere, a text message has come in that I think will be of interest to a lot of people. Yeah. It, and it, it applies to this, but I think it applies to um, uh, participants in research um, more broadly. Uh, this uh, text that says, screening is hugely invasive and demands a lot of medical information. How is how are trial participants' information being protected and is it kept long-term? Yeah, great question. So all the data in our clinical trials and in all clinical trials that are ethically approved uh, are stored incredibly safely. So, so there's always a, a whole set of secure storage requirements that we have to uh, um, uh, stick to. And um, there is a minimum uh, period of, of uh, storage of data under our, uh, our, our government rules. It depends on the kind of data, what that minimum period is. But, yes, it's stored very safely. Absolutely. Fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us in the studio this morning, Dr. Paul Lipnight-Sky. Ski, excuse me. Uh, it was really fascinating and um, um, it's a real shame we didn't have more time to unpack the many, many questions. Can I just say them. one thing before I go? Yeah, of course Forgive you me. Um, So we have a number of clinical trials that are recruiting uh, participants and you can see them on our website at monash.edu forward slash psychedelics. In particular, we're... Um, we're uh, uh, offering a trial uh, for uh, veterans and first responders who are mm. suffering with post-traumatic stress. and So more information can be found on our website. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. You're on Radiotherapy, Triple R. It's myself, Panel Beta, Dr Dilemma, Dr Neo and Dr Sharma. We've just been speaking with uh, Dr uh, Paul Litnitsky about uh, psychedelic medicine. We'll take a few sponsor announcements and we'll be back with...
the long anticipated awards show. If you want to join us, 0466981027. Back in it. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Radiotherapy, Triple R, with Dr. Dilemma, Dr. Sharma, Dr. Neil, and myself, panel beater. Awards time, folks. Here we go. Here we go. Where are we going to kick off? Well, I'll tell you what. We'll kick off by reminding everyone that you have a say in these very important, highly official, formalised <laughs> awards. Covered the, it. The number to text is 0466981027. We want you to text in on, on your thoughts on the nominees and who won. If you disagree, if you've got your own categories that you wish to nominate for, let us know. 0466981027. I think we should start at something, you know, Stock standard uh, innovation of the year, mm-hmm. and mm. and look, it's not this year, but it's kind of my my go to. I love I love this. Uh, it's uh, the the what we what uh, one of my my esteemed colleagues has written as RSV vaccine uh, or nisevimab, um, and. Although it's been around for a little bit, and we've been using it for a little bit, I I absolutely adore this this monoclonal antibody, which is not a true vaccine, but acts very much like a vaccine to block uh, this uh, kind of. In, it reduces the infection rate of RSV, which is one of the the key childhood viral infections, and one of the ones that kind of classically produces that bronchiolitis. Um, uh, like picture in the less than 12 month old so the ones that get really sick and may often uh, may end up hospitalized or um requiring oxygen support yeah. or feeding support i love it I, i'm with you I, Big it, fan. Is, it, it is the thing that clogs up emergency departments in winter it is you know usually one of the most severe illnesses kids will have under the yeah. age of two mm. so that i mean I, I do gather what you're saying it's not that the actual vaccine itself is new but the data and and the fact that it's being um, actually being administered to people in America mm. is certainly new, so it tells me that we're hopefully not too far away yeah. after that data's collected. Something else that caught my interest, uh, my nominee, was... Um, oh, gosh, actually, uh, I will, I've got two. I've got two. Can I be greedy? Yeah, okay. you can be greedy. So the, the first of them is the R21 vaccine for malaria, uh, which uh, in this particular trial found a 75% reduction in malaria after one year. I think that's massive. Mm. Malaria, as we know, is one of the biggest killers, full stop, of human beings. Mm. And we've, you know, there's always been problems with the antibiotics that we've used for this. So I thought that was pretty massive. Um, I think one of the big things is that you can't, people who are living in endemic areas can't rely on prophylaxis. It needs to be a long term uh, uh, fix for these individuals who are largely in lower socioeconomic countries and are copying the brunt of this disease. Absolutely. Well, before I give my second nomination, uh, uh, the rest of the team got a got anything they'd like to nominate? Who nominated possum poo? Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> I, okay, so okay, so it turns out I've got a third nomination. Yes, that I've kind of forgotten about. So this is incredible. Like this is one of those like clickbaity headlines I read. It was like possum poo being used to, you know, track the the Borrelia ulcer, the um, Mycobacterium ulcerans, which has been wreaking havoc around Victoria. And yes, turns out it is absolutely real. So. Um, Possum poo, which contains parts of Mycobacterium ulcerans, has been used by uh, 
by scientists, researchers to get an idea of where the Baruli ulcer cases in Victoria are popping up. So I thought that was, I thought it was pretty, pretty innovative, yes. Mm-hmm. Possums didn't even realise that they were a contender for innovation of the year. They're just going about their business. Yeah, who do we hand the trophy to? Do they have a leader? Yeah. I will just get all my nominations out of the way then. Yeah. Then the third one is the GLP-1 in, injections, the, the quote-unquote weight loss injections, obesity injections, but particularly there's one called retitrutide, which, to be fair, is only still in phase two um, uh, of the clinical trials, but seems to be, frankly, even more effective than the other ones. Now, why is this important? Well, not only have we got quite a great management plan for people who've had otherwise treatment-resistant obesity, but the really big learning for me, I think this year has been, we have found these medications are lowering people's chances of having bad cardiovascular outcomes, that is to say, heart attacks, strokes, etc., uh, separate to their ability to prevent, uh, to, to, to manage obesity. Mm. So we're now seeing, I think, the evolution in the use case of these medications, not necessarily just for weight loss, but to actually prevent really serious lethal uh, diseases, which I think is going to make the, the conversation around these medications even more complex than it has been. And yet I think the decision-making as far as for medicos goes, it's going to become potentially more and more obvious as time goes on and, to put people on this. And. Dr. Chalmers has touched on the complexity around these medications because they are incredibly complex, in, a, in not in a actual medication delivery point of view, but in a societal context over the past three or so years where these medications were being primarily used to manage type 2 diabetes and doing quite a good job at that. And then we found this effect of appetite suppression and how it's become a bit of a, almost a bit of a trend to be using them and it's been... Um, worldwide shortages and there's been discussions around people using them at uh, otherwise healthy BMIs and what what is the impact on that and I think there's a lot more research to be done and a lot more and I think we need to have quite strict guidelines on their uh, on their prescription because it's very easy to fall into the trap of just saying it's a miracle drug and it's it's going to revolutionize the world when in fact i think that it's going to play into a lot of our um our societal perceptions of what weight is and our individual um kind of uh happiness with uh bodies of a variety of sizes indeed Mm, okay any other uh, nominees got your... I'm going for malaria. Yeah, I think I'm going to have to choose the malaria vaccination. <laughs> well, no, you're not malaria. I just want <laughs> malaria to win. I want the vaccine to win. Let me clarify. An important distinction, Carl <laughs> That's right. Okay, okay. Malaria vaccine, it is, if you agree, let us know. 0466981027. If you think this... This award is being rigged and you've got your own suggestion. Let us know. Also, 0466-981027. Text in. All right. I think we should move on to um, trend of the year, Ooh, uh, yes. which uh, actually Ozempic has actually played into this. So um, Ozempic I'm, was a nominee, yes. Uh, you know, I'm not going not to get back on my high horse again. Um, <laughs> but I think the other one is I want to talk a little bit about ice baths. I think that uh, ice baths are... Uh, you know, maybe it's just me getting targeted like social media uh, ads and um, and videos about this, but it seems to be all the rage of, pe- of the, all of these people jumping into uh, ice baths. To I think a lot of it's based around you know kind of conquering your own mental health and your mm. anxiety and your fears and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But I kind of get stuck on this anti aging um, 
like that's where the ice baths have kind of originated in my mind and how mm. a lot of the anti-aging um, individuals say that you should never, ever take a hot shower. Mm. Hot shower oh, no. is the enemy. And I, I quite quite like... Quite enjoy a hot shower. I don't think I could give up my hot shower. I think I'd rather take 10 years off my life than, give up. <laughs> than have an ice bath in the morning. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I'm about to die after a cold shower. So, yeah, look, at yeah, I've, I've, it's been spruced as anti-aging, anti-cancer, anti-just everything really at this point. So I think that's certainly on the list. Um, the, the thing that's really, uh, I think, has been a late entrant in terms of medical trend of the year has been coffee enemas. Excuse me. Coffee, yes. So to be clear, that is shoving coffee up. Well, <laughs> exactly as it sounds. The end it usually <laughs> causes you to expel from. And um, there's been TikToks of people like literally just showing themselves doing it in the shower. And you know, it's one of those things where it is funny and we should laugh because it is ridiculous, <laughs> but also can actually be harmful in a you know, not insignificant number of cases. There's you know, cases of colitis. There's a cappuccino joke in here somewhere. Oh. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> Still have my coffee in front of me, panel beater. Thank you. Yeah, enjoy that afterwards. So, uh, so uh, Australian epidemiologist uh, uh, Gid MK, uh, health nerd, has done a really great takedown of coffee edemas talking about how they almost certainly have do no good and probably incur some harm. So that's a late entrant of medical trend mm. of the year for me. Any other ones caught your caught your eyes? We've mentioned Ozempic, ice baths, coffee edemas. Anything else? I saw somebody mention mouth taping. That didn't catch my attention during the year. Oh yeah, it's where it's the whole it's the thing where people tape their mouth before they go to sleep and so So do they breathe through their nose and reap the benefits of nose breathing as opposed to mouth breathing? I'm not too I've seen a lot of it on my social media. Um, I'm not sure where the evidence stands. I I don't know. Yeah. So we're we're quite agnostic about it as you can tell at the radiotherapy uh, (laughs) I think I think the whole idea I think there's some dental benefits to being a nose Ah, nose breather than a mouth breather. Um, is it worth putting putting tape over your mouth? Uh, text in if you think so. Yeah, has anyone tried it? Yeah, has anyone tried it? Oh four six six nine eight one zero two seven. Text in. Have you tried mouth taping? What's the metric here for the winner? Is it um, most popular, as in the trendiest, or is it the oddest? If it's the oddest, it's coffee enemas. It's coffee gotta, enemas. It's gotta it's gotta be. Be I don't want enema. my steaming hot long black uh, <laughs> per rectal. <laughs> 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 thank, uh, thank you for that, uh, Dr. Neo. <laughs> 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 Goodness, coffee enemas. Okay. Onwards Is that and upwards. The winner? Onwards okay. and up. Yeah, coffee enemas. <laughs> Congratulations, <laughs> coffee enemas. <laughs> yeah, awards in the mail. Um, how about we go to uh, personality of the year? Jeez, oh, uh, who's put Gwyneth Paltrow on this list? Wow, well, who, she's the who's doing, done it. She's doing the John Farnham, isn't she? Right now, she's she's promised that she's she's leaving. She's I think going she was away. Personality of the year last year, wasn't Dr. she? I, uh, I think we've been put, putting Gwyneth Paltrow on the, on the list ever since we did that uh, the the Goop uh, episode. Well, 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 maybe she should not be winning. You know. Personality of the year. Maybe we need to create for next year like a, the a, a Hall of Fame. Award. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Hall the of Fame. Hall of Fame. Oh, yes, yes, Hall yes. Hall of Fame. Oh, my yeah. God. Hall of Fame. Or the Gwyneth Paltrow Award. That would be yeah. fair. Look, yeah. the one for me in terms of health, wellness, personality of the year, by far and away, is Brian Johnson. Brian Johnson is a billionaire with not much else to do, right? <laughs> so this was a guy who... When he looked, when he was about like forty or so, he looked like a forty-year-old guy. He looked nice and lovely, and it's he's self-documented this journey of wanting to age himself down back to eighteen. He's got kids who are like in their twenties. He, he says he's almost competing with them to look younger and younger, and he has done 
Mm. Everything. Everything you can imagine, any health trend you can imagine, he states he's scientifically experimented with to reverse his chronological age. And it's, you know, he, he looks completely, you know, ripped, 0% body fat, eats hardly any food, but... Does he take an ice bath in the morning? You, you bet. Three. <laughs> you know, this guy is, um, the I think, just the modern personification of your tech billionaire that is a hero to a certain kind of subset, I think, of the, of the internet, mm. who has... Uh, kind of merged the, the kind of the pseudoscience, I think, of of health and wellness with the kind of cloak of science and science-y sound, science uh, sounding things. He takes, I think, about a hundred different supplement pills a day. Uh, works with quote unquote the top researchers in the world to optimize his health down to eighteen. And you know what? He still looks his age, and there's nothing wrong yeah, with that. No. Yeah, more money than sense. Indeed. Yeah. But if you Google Brian Johnson, there's just about. I'd say about 50 photos of him topless. Yeah. Um, uh, yes. I, I'm a, I think I shouldn't have Googled this. <laughs> no, 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 oh no, don't Google it. This is less palatable than the uh, coffee enema. Let's, uh, let's just uh, make him the winner, yeah. I think. Yeah, <laughs> we'll yeah, move yeah, on, move on. A, 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 a listener's uh, texting, he's expelling coffee enema a decaf. It is. Yeah, thank you for that. <laughs> we em, need a... Emma's stuck on the Brian Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> um, we uh, we'll just finish. We just need a couple more sponsor announcements. We'll come back and we'll wrap up with. Uh, I reckon we'll go with Medical Science Shoots Itself in the Foot Award. If you've got something in mind there, listeners, and uh, book, film, web pa- webcast, website, podcast, TV, or whatever of the year as well. Zero four double six nine eight one zero two seven. If you want to join us back shortly. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. It's the last couple of minutes of the last show of this formulation of radiotherapy for the year. Two more radiotherapy shows still to come, though. Uh, we're d- ripping through our awards. We've had a listener um, pipe up regarding um, uh, mouth taping, um, raising yes. the flag. I've tried sleep apnea machine but find it claustrophobic. I made myself a mandibular uh, protrusive device, but that causes TMJ issues. Mouth taping works really well to stop snoring. Wow. Don't know the effect on apnea, but the taping is good. There we go. Um, let's turn our attention to Medical Science Shoots Itself in the Foot Award. Now, this award's basically not saying that the science is necessarily wrong, but maybe in an attempt to draw attention to something, um, it, uh, well, it could be something that's gone wrong, um, or um, it's backfired somehow. Uh, top of the list was um, the scientist who uh, made up an ivermectin uh, paper, Dr Sharma. That's right. So that, that paper had to be retracted from a journal, and as had to be several others, and... It's just one of those things where you, know, you take the world quite a while to catch up with lies that were maybe told a few years ago. So I think the it's really been, I think, just closure on the entire ivermectin saga. Yeah. All the loose ends kind of tied up. <laughs> it's all over, but I'm sure we will never hear the I, end of it. I actually just got a bit of a traumatic flashback <laughs> <laughs> to, to you know, deep 2021, 2022, where you had to, actually had to read through these these ivermectin papers and look at how none of the numbers, mm. like basic addition was not being done on mm. these numbers and they were wrong. Mm. And it was just insane. 
The next two nominees for this award have something in common. They both uh, have scientific grounding, um, as uh, but uh, got so much attention that may have distorted public confidence in the information. Um, as Partame, which we dealt with on the show, we talked about this um, uh, synthetic sugar. Yeah. Um, and uh, in the, if you listen to some quarters, um, uh, this is the end of the universe as we know it, and the, uh, it's um, more deadly than deadly. Um, but of course, we know it's in such small quantities. In and the, yeah, and I think it really does count as a self own because these, these statements about it possibly causing cancer came out from the IARC. This is mm. the in, you know, intergovernmental agency that looks at risks of cancer. And then they then had to kind of issue clarifications in their own statement saying that this is not a comment on exactly how high the risk is and that there is still some uh, uh, some lack of clarity and uncertainty. And it was just a masterclass in terrible science communication. Mm. They may not have necessarily have been wrong in the actual interpretation of their studies per se, but the language they used and the way they chose to broadcast that just caused wave and waves of misinformation that was completely needless. Mm. So, yeah, that's definitely a total... Show on the foot. Yeah, I think it was a a really good example of someone not thinking through the consequences and thinking, oh, well, that's like, you know, people will understand this. It would be a, minor, a pretty minor comment putting mm. out the putting out the press release and then mm. explosion happening. Yeah. I haven't changed my 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 uh, my you didn't take it all. No, you didn't take it all. <laughs> no. No, not, not doing monthly CT scans, just to be sure. That, it's yeah, <laughs> and the final nominee just came to attention uh, during the week, although nutritional science has often taken a look at how f- different foods are compatible or not with each other in the diet. But uh, the one of the last week... Uh, is taking a look at um, polyphenol oxidase, which is talking about bioavailability of certain nutrients in certain pieces of fruit. In this case, the interest is because it's something we probably all, most of us uh, enjoy at one time or another, is a smoothie. And a very common uh, combination is blueberries and bananas. Sure, my favourite. (laughs) What are you trying to say here? Hang on. Right, and apparently this study finds that you don't put bananas in with blueberries because they reduce the bioavailability of the nutrients in the blueberries. So they cancel each other out. Yeah. Net <laughs> gain is Smooth- zero. Smooth- smoothies also decrease uh, the fibre content of your... Um, so you're not getting the, the good fibre content of... It's like with juices, fruit juices and yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but anyway, so the science is solid. But mm. again, it's a scalable matter. And, and of course, so many other lifestyle matters. You know, if, if you're having a banana smoothie because it makes you eat sm- drink smoothies, well, good on you. Absolutely. And there's probably other things going on in your life that are, are going all right. So... Um, should, um, I reckon, what do you reckon? Oh, goodness. As par, mate. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think that's part time. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Okay. Um, last one, very, very quickly. Might even just have to run through the nominees and announce it. Um, we're obviously uh, disqualifying radiotherapy for podcast film board of the year. The Aww. Boy Who Lived, Take Care of Maya, Huberman Lab, James Smith, and Peter Adia. I think if we're talking to talk about most influential, it's got to be Huberman, and there's a we've got to do an entire segment on that. But oh, I did nominate "Take Care of Maya" as a documentary that I watched. I believe mm. it's on Netflix about the oh, just absolutely gripping, harrowing tale of a real life um, experience of a family in the United States whose um, uh, child was essentially taken from their care um, due to concerns about care, and turned out not to be the case. Um, yeah, highly That's recommend. Win for me. It yeah, was yeah, ripping, absolutely. absolutely harrowing. 
I think we need to wrap it up there. Let's go with uh, Take Care of May. Get that into your ears on your podcast platform. Big thanks to everybody for listening in to our final show of the this formulation of Radio Th- Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.